Chapter 5 of The Northwest Passage by Roald Amundsen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Towards the Pole. On March 1st, we were ready to start. The thermometer stood at 63 and one half degrees below zero Fahrenheit. But in the course of the month of February, we had become so used to cold that it really did not make any great impression on us. We were, indeed, extremely well clad, some of us in complete Eskimo costume, others in a partly civilized style. My experience is that Eskimo dress in winter in these regions is far superior to our European clothes. But one must either wear it all or not at all. Any mixture is bad. Woolen underclothing absorbs all the perspiration and soon becomes wet through and through. Dressed in nothing but reindeer skin, like the Eskimo, and with garments so loose and roomy on the body that the air can circulate between them, one can generally keep his things dry. Even if you are working so hard that you can't help getting wet, the skin dries again much easier than wool. Besides, woolen things soon become dirty, and then they do not impart much warmth. Skin clothing keeps nearly as well, without washing. A further great advantage of skin is that you feel warm and comfortable the moment that you put it on. In woolen things, you have to jump and dance about like a madman before you can get warm. Finally, skins are absolutely windproof, which, of course, is a very important point. Our comrades, who were to remain behind, followed us up to the ridge as far as the sledges. The dogs were put to a last farewell, and then we were off. Hansen drove the dogs for one sledge, but got into harness himself as well. All the seven dogs were young animals, and they found it hard to manage the load. Lieutenant Hansen, Rispet, and I were harnessed to the other sledge. The ground sloped so slightly upwards that it was barely perceptible, yet it made itself felt all the same. The first hour, when all were fresh at it, things went very well. But then the difficulty began. Hansen managed the dogs well. When he noticed that they were going to give in, he took a turn in the traces so that they, feeling they had some additional help, pulled away again. But we three were not so well off with the other sledge. It seemed as though we were driving it through the sand of the desert. Even at home in Norway, we know how tiring drift snow can be, but in the severe cold up here, it is much worse. Every now and then the sledge stopped. Every little snowdrift meant a stoppage. One, two, three, hello, and over it we went. Then on again, but not for long. A fresh drift, a fresh stoppage, and another tug. About three in the afternoon, we determined to pitch our camp. It had begun to grow dusk, and before we put up our snow hut, it would be dark. Now we had to find good snow. We were out in the middle of a great lake, and the snow was not good anywhere. We hacked away with our knives, but it was too shallow. The shore was too far away. We should not reach it till after dusk, so there was nothing to do but remain where we were. First, we let the dogs loose. They had had hard work of it and deserved their freedom and rest. The boss among them was Fix, an unusually fine grayish-white dog who had risen to be the lord of the rest simply by his commanding character and not at all by reason of his strength. If it came to a fight, 
Fix would get a good drumming, but he seemed born to rule and was obeyed. Sill was his grand vizier, the ugliest dog in the whole team, dark brown and with a stupid, suspicious expression. The pointed, erect ears which give the arctic dog such a wide-awake look in Sill stuck straight out and made him look more stupid still. The instant the harness was off, Fix made his round, followed by Sill, from dog to dog, and in sign of subjection, everyone had to lie on his back with all four paws in the air before his highness Fix. If one delayed in doing so, Sill was at him like a flash. Sill got his name from his sharp-pointed teeth. So the dogs had their food, and we were left in peace to begin our building operations. We put on our building gloves, made especially for constructing snow huts. They had long cuffs to prevent the snow from penetrating the armholes, and had to be securely tied. We set to work, each armed with his half-yard snow knife. The architect appointed for the occasion marked out the ground plot in a circle, and along this line he kicked out a furrow four inches deep to afford support for the foundation blocks. We cut out the blocks, and he attended to the construction. An igloo, as the Eskimo call their snow huts, is erected in a spiral form, something like a beehive, and always against the sun, that is, from right to left. The blocks must be two feet long by one and a half feet high and four inches thick. The greatest difficulty consists in working the wall inwards to form the roof. Any duffer can put up a straight wall. As the thermometer showed seventy and three-fifths degrees below zero Fahrenheit, no one was tempted to be lazy, and the work went rapidly forward. The cook appointed for that evening set to work inside the walls as early as possible to get the building warmed up quickly, as well as to get the food ready. The workers outside redoubled their efforts as they began to scent the odor of the food. The last task was to go over all the chinks through which light shone from the inside and stop them up. Then we inspected the sledges to see that all was well lashed and covered up, especially from the dogs who were great thieves. Poor beasts, they coiled themselves up as well as they could to lure to the hut walls and sledges, warming their noses under their tails. The hut was ready. A last look out into the great stillness, with the western sky in a dying glow of green and the stars growing in brightness. Then we knocked the snow off our clothes and crept in. And this I will say, that happier people could hardly be found on the earth than we four fellows in that sheltered, cozy hut round the steaming hot food, only separated by a wall from the waste and the biting frost without. After the meal, out came our pipes, and it was only the thought that we must rise early for new toil next morning that made us break off our chat and creep into our sleeping bags. The day's efforts soon made themselves felt, and four men's regular breathing suggested that Morpheus, the friend of mankind, may possibly also have been an Arctic traveler. At five o'clock, we were awakened by the rhythmical pump strokes of the primus, the stove. The cook had not overslept himself. It is strange that everything seems so much less attractive in the morning than in the evening. Thus, for example, our comfortable hut now looked gloomy and narrow. A cup of steaming chocolate, however, improved conditions considerably. 
one of us complained that the boots he had used for a pillow might have been a little softer his consolation was only a desultory question from another why he did not keep them on and then they would not have got frozen stiff i was very anxious to see what was the reading of the minimum thermometer i had set up outside in the evening the temperature had fallen the day before so suddenly from sixty five degrees to seventy degrees fahrenheit below that i thought it had dropped still further in the course of the night i removed the snow block which closed the entrance and crept out there was a feeble ray of daylight and a dead calm the stars seemed unusually bright and large indicating intense cold i cannot say that i felt it myself but the night's minimum was minus seventy nine degrees fahrenheit a pretty sharp frost we could not but praise our excellent outfit which together with our good snow hut had kept out this cold god knows we felt it in our fingertips when we had to take off our gloves to work if we found them in the way our fingers turned white in an instant and we had to get life back into them sharp either by putting the gloves on again or by clapping our hands together or better still by adopting the eskimo dodge of putting them next to the bare abdomen the dogs lay as we left them in the evening with the exception of fix and sill who of course had got loose to make a row the problem of securely tying up the dogs was one we never solved somehow or other they always broke loose if they were so inclined some would keep still but when one got loose there was no end of a row accompanied by baying and envious howls from the others little bay went by the name of ola hoyland because no chain could hold him and lily played the trick of puffing her neck out when we put her collar on and freeing herself later on it was no joke to have to turn out of one sleeping bag in the middle of the night and go out to keep the dogs in order on we toiled again after yesterday's experience we put the wooden runners on under the german silver mountings as the sledges ran far better on wood in the sharp cold one can't do better in these matters than copy the eskimo and let the runners get a fine covering of ice then they slide like butter but we had not had any experience of this the speed indicator was applied to the dog sledge it was an old apparatus from the second fram expedition but in excellent condition in spite of all our efforts we progressed so slowly that the wheels seemed to stand still what added to our trouble was a sharp headwind very biting to the exposed parts of the face we were continually watching each other's faces and detecting a white nose on one or a frozen cheek on another we did as the eskimos do we drew our warm hands out of the gloves and applied them to the frozen spot till the blood came again into circulation i had long given up the old household remedy of rubbing with snow it was not known among the eskimo while a wretched little wind and the fifty-eight degree below zero struck us like needles or whiplashes the dogs did not seem to mind but the poor creatures suffered greatly especially in the early hours of the morning when they were still tired and stiff from the previous day we too had a rough time of it i now saw that there was little to be gained by going on in this way as no change occurred in the temperature either on the second day or third day after consulting my companions i decided to turn back and wait for milder weather early on the third day we brought part of our things into the igloo as a depot and walled it up again carefully 
the situation of the spot was accurately determined a flag set up on the roof and a photograph taken and then we shaped our course back to yoahaven the dogs soon saw which way we were going and we men were all glad we had given up our hopeless task the result was that we did the journey of seven miles in four hours though in coming out it had taken us two and a half days but our sledge load was now considerably lighter at eleven o'clock in the forenoon we surprised our companions on the yoa by our unexpected and hasty return the time was now occupied with work of various kinds we had not been long away but our experience was valuable and we effected many alterations in our outfit as the result of it about this time some of the dogs got tapeworm we had no medicine for this disease but Rispet, who, independent of his other excellent qualifications, was a veterinary surgeon, managed the worms. The effects of the advancing sun, which rose perceptibly higher every day, began to show themselves. Large, bright surfaces appeared on the snow. The intense cold had subsided, and sledging was considerably easier. Little by little, signs of animal life reappeared. On March 12th, we saw the first ptarmigan. One fine day, Terayo cut a hole in the ice, erected a snow wall as a shelter against the wind, and started fishing. The result was not great, but he succeeded in catching a dozen small cod. On March 16th, I resolved to go out again and try to carry the depot a little further. I chose Hansen to accompany me. The idea of a relief expedition was abandoned. Lieutenant Hansen's time would now be occupied in charting the station and erecting cairns for the purpose. This was a laborious as well as a protracted operation. Our second start was much more favorable than the first. It was fine weather, and the temperature, minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, was fairly seasonable. We took with us from the vessel one sledge with ten dogs. The effect of the sun on the snow was immediately noticeable. For long stretches, the sledge went at a furious rate over the most brilliant snow crust, so that we had difficulty in following. In about three hours, we now accomplished the whole of our former toilsome journey. The igloo, with its depot, was in very good order, and we at once began to divide the load between our two sledges. There was an additional sledge in the igloo. The weight on each sledge was about 400 weight, and to each we harnessed five dogs. Allured by the many signs of spring, I had taken a tent with me this time. We were now only two men, and the building of a snow hut would take us a long time. Meanwhile, we slept that first night very snugly in our good old igloo. Early the next morning, we were on the road. In the calm weather, we went swimmingly over the plains of King William Land. We were soon down in Latrobe Bay on the east side. We skimmed smoothly over the even ice in the bay, and after dusk, we erected our tent under a hummock. But we had bitter experience of the difference between a tent and a snow hut. We could not get warm, even in the sleeping bags, and we passed most of the time turning and twisting about and knocking our feet together. It was pure enjoyment to be on the move again the next day and get warmth into our bodies by means of a little hard marching. There was a frosty mist, which was bitterly cold. Unfortunately, we had spoilt our thermometer 
and could not determine the degree of cold. Our petroleum, however, acted as a sort of thermometer. When it was thick and milky white, we knew it was about 58 degrees below zero. We set our course north to reach Matty Island. I had proposed establishing the depot on Cape Christian Frederick, where we had been on the sea trip southwards. The sun peeped out from time to time, so we determined our position. Otherwise, we took our bearings from hummock to hummock. Between these, the ice, as a rule, was smooth and bright. The hummocks were not large and were formed by newly frozen ice, as could be seen by the thin pieces of which they were formed. We halted now and then to make sure of a direction, as well as to rest a little and have a chat. At ten o'clock, we stopped to lash the sledges tighter, and the conversation turned on the Eskimo, whom McClintock met here in 1859. Should we find some tribes here still? As we sat, we saw a black dot far out on the ice. Hansen, with his excellent sight, soon concluded that it was an Eskimo approaching us. Shortly after, several of them emerged from the hummocks, and very soon we could see thirty-four men and boys at a distance of about two hundred yards. They stood still and observed us without any sign of coming nearer. I now felt considerably safer than on my first encounter with Eskimo, my acquaintance with the language was also better, and I decided to go to them. However, we got our rifles ready, and Hansen kept an eye on them. When we were quite near, I called out Manik to me, and it was as if an electric shock had gone through the whole crowd. A thirty-fourfold Manik to me was heard in reply, and I went straight up to them. Hansen, who saw that there was nothing to fear, abandoned his post and followed me. The Eskimos' delight, nay, enthusiasm, was really touching. They stroked and patted us, laughing and shouted Manik to me unceasingly. They were Nicheli Eskimo. They had told us that they were on the way to their seal fisheries. Each man carried his spear in his hand and had a dog following him on a leash. They were also provided with large snow knives. They gave us the impression of being cleaner and better clad than our first friends, the Agluli Eskimo. When I asked where their camp was, they pointed eastwards beyond the hummocks. I was anxious to make the acquaintance of these people, and I told them that I should be happy to accompany them to their camp. They were frantically glad to hear this, and at once set to work to help us with our sledges, harnessing all their own dogs to them. We had plenty of dogs now. When we had finished putting them to, an old fellow came driving along on a little sledge. This was Kagoptener, that is, the gray-haired, who we later got to know was the oldest and best medicine man of the tribe. After a friendly greeting, his three dogs were added to our team, and the old chap himself was set on the top of one of our sledges. As we started off at a rattling pace, old Kagoptener had his work cut out to hold on. The sledge was more often on one runner than on two. Some of the youngest boys capered about at the head of the procession, accompanied by the dogs in the wildest confusion. They were beyond control. The Eskimo dogs were overjoyed at returning home so early, and our own got sent to the camp and made for it. Then one of them suddenly flew at his neighbor, and before long the whole of one team was engaged in a furious fray. This was more than the other team could stand, and first one, then two, three, and at last the whole lot were engaged in mortal combat. 
the eskimo threw themselves among them snorting dogs and howling eskimo formed one chaos until they finally succeeded in getting the dogs parted the traces were disentangled again and the journey continued the men formed a row alongside each team running laughing and shouting unceasingly they were clumsy and heavy but looked as if they could keep the pace a long time in about an hour they began to shout igloo igloo and sure enough far ahead among the hummocks we sighted a crowd of huts shaped like hayricks another half hour and we were there this was the largest camp i had seen sixteen huts altogether they were not arranged on any kind of a system but spread about according to the conditions of the snow the whole place looked quite deserted we halted a little way off and loosed the dogs the men made quietly for their huts and shortly afterwards the fair sex made their appearance they arranged themselves in single file one behind the other when all were mustered the strange possession started running toward us at the head came old auva after her her friend anana running hardly expresses the movement they reminded one of a row of waddling geese they made straight for us and i trembled would they kiss us as a sign of welcome old auva was appalling to behold we had come upon them so abruptly that they had had no time to complete their toilet such clothing as auva had on was covered with fat and soot her face shone with train oil and her grayish black hair hung in wild confusion under the hood that had slipped down at the back of her neck i looked at her with horror as she came nearer and hid myself hastily behind the little suspecting hansen to let him take the first shock nor was anana beautiful either she was covered with dirt and soot and train oil but anyone who could survive auva could easily put up with the other now they were up to poor hansen and i was just expecting the kissing and embracing to commence when they swerved aside and formed a circle around us emitting all sorts of weird grunts and then waddled off back to the camp now that the fright was over i was able to examine them more calmly and i must say that my first impressions of nicelli eskimo ladies did not redound to their advantage whether it was pure accident that just the ugliest of them came to us then or that my taste altered later i cannot say certain it is that i afterwards thought some of them were quite good-looking when the procession which in fact had been organized in our honor and to show us a welcome reached the camp those who had taken part in it retired to their respective huts now we had to think about getting our snow hut built after the experiences of last night we were not anxious to try the tent again we selected a spot not far from the others and set to work at first the eskimo followed us with inquisitive glances they no doubt hardly thought that a kabluna a foreigner could manage a piece of work which was their own specialty but they did not wait long before very audibly expressing their views on the point hansen and i did something or other that they were not used to and in a trice the whole crowd burst out into noisy exultation their laughter was uncontrollable the tears ran down their cheeks they writhed with laughter gasped for breath and positively shrieked at last they recovered sufficiently to be able to offer us their assistance they took the whole work in hand 
but had to stop every now and then to have another laugh at the thought of our stupidity. In a short time, however, the most beautiful igloo was ready for us. We took our things in and arranged them, and then we went around visiting. I had already noticed one man among the rest out on the ice. He was not like his companions, full of laughter and nonsense, but rather serious. There was also something haughty in his air, almost commanding. Yet he could hardly be a chief of any kind, as the others treated him quite as an equal. A fine fellow he was, with raven black hair, and unlike his fellow tribesmen, he had a luxuriant growth of beard. He was broad-shouldered and somewhat inclined to corpulency. His belongings, clothes, tackle, dogs, etc., were choice in quality and appearance. When I came out of my hut, he stood at a little distance from the others and regarded me with a look that seemed to intimate that he had something special to tell me. I accordingly went straight up to him, and he bade me go with him to his hut. It looked exceptionally neat outside. Like a courteous host, he made me enter first. This, I am now inclined to think, was an accident, but at the moment it increased my sympathy for the man, as was only right and proper. His name was Eteclura. He was a son of old Kagoptener, the medicine man we had met on the ice, in his own turnout. He showed himself later to be far superior to all his countrymen in every respect. I followed his suggestion and went inside his igloo. A passage led into the hut proper. This was so low that I had to stoop down. It had two extensions, quite like small huts, and what they served for was not difficult to guess by the odor. There was nothing to see, as the dogs were the scavengers. A hole so small that one had almost to creep through it led into the dwelling room. When I stood upright inside, I was speechless with astonishment. It was quite an apartment for festive occasions. It had been constructed the day before, and was therefore still gleaming white. From floor to roof, the room measured fully twice a man's height. The blocks in the wall were regular and of equal size, and the inside diameter was not less than 15 feet. It was evident that Elik Lura knew how to build beautifully. The sleeping shelf was so high, one had to swing oneself up onto it, and it was covered in the most delicate reindeer skins. Everything gave the impression of the most perfect order. On the form before the fireplace sat the lady of the house. She was strongly Mongolian in type, but by no means beautiful. But she looked clean and tidy. Like most other Eskimo women, she had lovely shining white teeth and beautiful eyes, brown on a light blue ground. She was tattooed like the rest on her chin, cheeks, brow, and hands. We learnt afterwards that these women also tattooed themselves on other parts of the body. Her manner was not so engaging as her husband's. On the contrary, it was somewhat brusque. Her three sons had also evidently much respect for their mother. The eldest, Herrera, was a youth of sixteen or seventeen of the purest Indian type. The absolute dissimilarity between the child and the parents was then inexplicable to me, but it became less so later when I learnt to know their matrimonial relations better. Herrera was a very sympathetic, one might almost be tempted to say well-bred boy, whose polite and pleasing disposition endeared him to us all. The next in age was his exact opposite, 
a saucy fellow who had been given as a present to grandfather Kegoptener, who in grandfatherly fashion spoiled him and withdrew him from his mother's good influence the youngest was ani a perfectly charming little chap of five his parents darling the whole family was better clad than the other eskimo the boy's clothing was of quite a model type from what i saw i determined to be on good terms with that tikliura he was manifestly a man it would be an advantage to know as soon as i came in that tikliura fetched a skin sack out of which he took a very finely made reindeer skin garment which he presented to me in my eagerness i wanted to strike while the iron was hot and hinted that I should greatly value a suit of underclothing as well. Evidently very pleased at my request, he now brought out some old, worn underclothing, put them on in place of those he was wearing, and handed me the latter, with every indication that I was to change there and then. Somewhat surprised, I hesitated. I must say, I was not in the habit of exchanging underwear with other people, especially in the presence of a lady. But, as Atiklura insisted, and his wife, Nalungia, showed the most complete indifference to what I did, I quickly made my decision, seated myself on the form, veiled my charms as well as I could with the bedclothes, and was soon clad in Atiklura's still warm underclothing. After this, I was regaled with water, frozen raw reindeer meat, and salmon, served with small squares of seal blubber. I did not relish the meat, but the frozen salmon was indeed quite delicious in flavor. For dessert, I had frozen reindeer marrow, which did not taste badly. Atiklura also provided for our dogs and dealt out huge lumps of blubber to them. This unwanted fare vanished like dew in the sunshine. After this feast of welcome was over, I put on my fine new outer clothing and went out. Outside in front of the hut, lay a very fine polar bear skin, thick-haired and shining white, a really splendid specimen. I stood gazing at it in admiration, but then went hastily over to my own hut to bring some return gifts for my friends. Luckily, I had brought with me some sewing needles, spear points, etc., on which the Eskimo set special value, and I think Atiklura and Nalungia had hardly ever been so happy in their lives as when I brought them my gifts, two spear points for him and six sewing needles for her. After this, I made a round of all the huts and was everywhere very well received. Old Auva was particularly amiable. When I took leave of her, she presented me with a little bearskin and two reindeer tongues. As the latter were thoroughly filthy and covered with hair, she first picked the coarsest dirt off and then had recourse to the universal Eskimo tool, her tongue. She licked my reindeer tongue so clean that you could see your face in them. On my return to our own hut, Atiklura stood there with his bearskin. He handed it to me, beaming with joy. As a modest young man, I represented to him that I could not possibly accept such great generosity. But Atiklura would not hear of it, and resolutely carried the skin into my hut, and laid it there. Hansen now returned. He had also passed the time in paying visits and taking five o'clock tea in different huts. Like me, he had profited by the opportunity to rig himself out, and was enraptured with all he had seen and heard. 
As a present, he had received reindeer tongues, which had evidently been treated in the same manner as mine. We decided, however, to brown them a little more before eating them. Our arrangements with the stove and other cooking apparatus interested the Eskimo in the highest degree, so that the hut was soon full of visitors. The women kept away, probably by order of the strict husbands. Only Auva and Anana, who were both merry widows, ventured to pay us a visit. We formed quite a high opinion of the morals and manners among the Nacelli Eskimo. The men seemed to watch over their wives, and the latter to be faithful and obedient to their husbands. This good impression, however, did not last long. We had decided to travel further northward next morning, and accordingly made ourselves ready the night before. As our dogs were rather tired, I applied to Atiklura to see if it was possible to get the loan of some dogs from the Eskimo. In Agluli Eskimo, dog is called Miki, but when I asked Atiklura for Miki, he was a long time before he understood me. I explained over and over again what I meant, and at last he seemed to understand. He nodded assent, and I was satisfied. A younger brother of Atiklura, Poeta, had promised to accompany us north to show us the best way through the hummocks. He was a fine fellow of twenty-five or twenty-six, not so heavily built as his brother, but with an open, engaging face. He was smart and willing. His wife, who also bore the name of Nalungia, received some sewing needles for her husband's services. The first who met me when I came out next morning was Annie. Atiklura's youngest boy and the apple of his eye. He stood, evidently waiting for me, and smiled with a mild and pleased expression. I took the boy by the hand and went with him to his parrot's hut. Here Atiklura was already at work on a piece of bone while he hummed and sang. I greeted him and told him to be good enough to get his dogs ready as we wanted to be off. Astonished and a little impatient, Atiklura pointed to the youngest and said, Ona Mikaga, there is my boy. Miki in the Chile means child, not dog. The misunderstanding was soon cleared up, and we got the loan of two good dogs while Atiklura and Nalungia retained their darling. When all was ready and the dogs harnessed, I had all the women of the camp called together. They were arranged in a row and passed me one at a time, while each of them got four sewing needles as thanks for good treatment. That the notorious feminine cunning is not an exclusive possession of white women was shown by old Totally, who, when she had received her needles, sneaked in again at the queue and came up for a new supply. When she saw she was found out, she burst out laughing heartily, all the rest joining in. Taking them all together, they were the merriest people I have met. We started off smartly, Poeta leading. He knew the way and kept us clear of hummocks. At four o'clock in the afternoon, we came into high ice pack, and Poeta halted. As it cleared for a moment, we caught sight of Matty Island. It was sheer delight to build an igloo when one had an Eskimo to help, and the hole was done in an hour. The next day was miserable. The wind blew right in our teeth, and judging by the state of the petroleum, the temperature was about 58 degrees below zero. Time after time I got my nose frozen white, and big chilblains formed on my wrists. Hansen managed better. His nose suffered a little, 
but his gloves closed better over the cuffs of his coat and protected his wrists from the frost at noon we hit upon a little eskimo camp of six huts and now poeta refused in the most decisive manner to go further for which we could not blame him as the weather was so abominable these eskimo were on an average taller than the nichelle and stood about six feet high but otherwise they produced a much less favorable impression they had the failing of begging for all they saw so troublesome did they become with this during the evening that we thought proper to creep into our hut and shut ourselves in they had of course helped us very kindly in erecting our igloo but i had no trust in them and before we went to bed we lashed our sledge load with extra care and in this we were right as the next day we missed a saw a knife and an axe after a whole lot of bickering and unpleasantness we at last succeeded in getting these things back again but there could be no question of leaving any depot in the neighborhood of these people the first thing they would do when we were out of sight would obviously be to plunder the whole depot i therefore found it advisable to return to our friends the Natchili and place the depot under their charge one day more or less to the north would not be of great consequence on the evening previous when the snowstorm at last ceased we had seen land on both sides to the west lay cape hardy on matty island and to the northeast probably cape christian frederick on boothia felix as usual we traveled much faster home than out and by four o'clock we were back with our good friends poeta got a knife for his trouble and was delighted with it his wife received some sewing needles and we became excellent friends the next day we rested in the camp as they told me they would be going south on the day following and i wanted to see the process of removal i did not regret it as i never had another opportunity of being present at such a march of nomads moreover i was much interested in going around the huts in the course of the day and chatting with them at half past seven in the morning all was ready for starting in all there were nine sledges to which both men and dogs were harnessed many of the women were employed as draft animals and smart they were too and a pleasure to look at not the least pathetic part of it was the good humor with which they tugged away their faces changed alternately from red to white and vice versa from the sharp cold in their own efforts and i thought many of them very pretty indeed this after barely four days acquaintance with them they stepped out like men and in their gait reminded one of young tars with their swinging arms and well-bent knees unlike the men all eskimo women are bandy-legged from always sitting with their legs bent under them they made frequent halts to take breath and well they might as their loads were heavy between their sledges and ours there was a difference of a thousand years evolution ours of the twentieth century were quite insignificant in size compared with theirs which like the eskimo themselves and all that they have belong to the stone age and yet we carried house and provisions for three months while the eskimo had with them barely enough food for the day all the sledges drove in a line so that each smoothed the way for the next when a halt was made the young folks played football i was not able to detect any proper rules in the game but anyhow it was regular football as at home with a ball of laced-up skin which 
with the help of arms and legs, drifted about among the players of both sexes. Indeed, the women were perhaps the best players. Then the order was given for them to fall in, the ball vanished, and all were in the traces in an instant and continued their journey. As early as noon, a halt was called for the day, at a point to which, on the previous day, two sledges had been sent with their supply of meat. The Eskimos are seldom in a hurry. Time is of no consequence to them, as a rule, and what they do not manage today, they do tomorrow. Also, when pitching a camp, they take plenty of time in making preparations. The heads of families sound the snow all about with their snow sticks, and make a long and thorough examination before they decide on a site for their igloos. With good help, our hut was finished at the same time as the others. I prevailed upon the Eskimo to remain with us and go with us to the ship the following day, but next day they wanted to stay another day and try seal catching, and I remained to accompany them in their sport. We started with a company of twenty men. It was bitterly cold with a heavy snowstorm from the northwest. I rigged myself out in my new clothes and drew the hood as tightly as possible over my face. The snowstorm, which blocked our view at a few paces distance, did not trouble the Eskimo. They knew their way, and as the sky was clear, they knew their bearings, which lay toward the southeast, away from the wind. Gradually, the hunting party spread out, so that I was soon alone with young Anguju. But while many of the others had already found their seal holes and begun to work, Anguju's mind was evidently intent on anything but hunting in the intense cold. We went some distance inland to inspect the nature of the country more closely. There was not much to see in the snowstorm, only a little hill crest with projecting rocks, and I did not think it worthwhile to go further. We turned around and had a rough time getting back. Even Anguju sometimes had to go backwards against the wind. As my nose was continually freezing, and Anguju found it tedious to be always putting his bare hand on it, he took off his knee warmer, made of reindeer skin, which the Eskimo bind round the knee to prevent the wind from working up the trousers, and fastened it over my nose. In this way I managed to get back to camp with nothing more than a slight frostbite on my cheek. The others returned with two seals. On the next day, March 25th, we continued our journey together. We laid down our depot a little way inland, erected a high snow pillar over it, and told the Eskimo to look after it. Then Hansen and I bade them goodbye, as with our lighter sledges we ought to get along much faster than they. I drew the stretch of coast from King William Land in the snow and indicated the position of Joachavn. They knew it well, and like the Ogluli, called it Ogchuktu, a name in common use amongst ourselves. Eteklura's youngest brother, Terry Ganyak, accompanied us and was of great assistance, especially in the afternoon when we had to build an igloo as the wind began blowing again later on. We were on board again at eight o'clock on the morning of the 26th. Circumstances had once more prevented me from getting as far as I wished but still it was satisfactory to have laid down a depot so far ahead. The day after our departure, the lieutenant and Ristvet had set out to investigate more closely the two islands we could see ahead. That they were islands, there was no doubt. In the spring, the Eskimo had caught a large number of seals there, 
and had named these islands Akliktu and Aklu. Later, they were called Hogvard's Islands. The explorers had not yet returned, but at noon there was a lively scene as Rispet and the lieutenant arrived with all our thirty Eskimo friends, whom, to their astonishment, they had met out on the ice. Cries of Monik to me had reassured them, and here they were, all in a body, and Oktuktu became populous. The Eskimo built themselves a row of huts in the Lindstrom Valley, one of the small valleys leading up from the harbor. So much hospitality had the Eskimo shown Hansen and myself that we, of course, had to make some return. But at the risk of appearing stingy, I stipulated from the outset that only those who were constantly employed on board should receive food. We could not, like the Eskimo, renew our supplies by a trip out on the ice, and it was therefore necessary to draw the line in time, nay, at once. I also gave strict orders that none of the property of the expedition should be given away or bartered. This was done to keep up the value of our means of barter, and we succeeded in so doing up to the end. The Eskimos, with their sharp business instinct, had soon discovered that it was more remunerative to bring their goods as gifts. I was, therefore, obliged to decline all gifts and introduce regular trading instead. However, to show the Eskimo that good behavior and friendliness paid, I presented Atiklura with an old Remington rifle and some few cartridges. His joy and pride were indescribable. At this time, we got some more accurate information about our good Tarayo. His whole story of the winter was a lie from beginning to end. He had purposely let the others start without him. Nor was he without food. He had six heavy reindeer carcasses hidden away, among other things, in the neighborhood of his hut, the rascal. However, we had derived much advantage and amusement in many ways, both from him and his wife, Keagalo, so we were not too hard on him. Meanwhile, the moment came for our final start with the sledge expedition, which we had fixed for after Easter. My plan was to push on to Leopold's Harbor, but I have been reluctantly obliged to abandon it. Experience has shown us that our dogs were too young to manage the long day's journeys we should have had to take. My first decision was to take Hansen with me this time, but as Lund would have too much to do on board alone, I had to give up Hansen and take Ristbed instead. Such changes in plans easily occasion dissatisfaction and are therefore unpleasant. But there was no help for it in this instance. On April 6th, we were ready. We went with Tarayo and catch Kochnelli, who were going with their families to Abva, Mount Matheson, to catch seals. The day was fine, and with its 22 degrees below zero, could still be called a spring day. This was the first day in the year that we felt the sun's warmth, an inexpressibly pleasant sensation. Soon we had to take off our outer clothing, lay it in the sledge, and continue our journey in undergarments only. Keagalo, the old eagle, had gone on a couple of hours in advance to get a start. But the poor thing mistook the way out on the ice, and had to go a long way around to get into our line of march again. But it was tedious traveling for us, too, for fresh snow had fallen and made the road heavy. The sledges were heavily laden and the dogs out of practice. Consequently, Keogolo reached the land on the other side of the bay behind Newmyer's Peninsula 
at the same time as we did. But she was very tired, the poor creature. While preparations were being made for lunch, I struck up one of my best tunes, and the eagle revived and joined with all her might in a duo, which in other latitudes would scarcely have been so well appreciated. The menu consisted of the daintiest frozen dishes, reindeer meat, fish, and reindeer tripe, garnished with blubber and chopped up in squares. Ristved is no despiser of good fare, and he swallowed piece after piece of meat and blubber. It is an unvaluable quantity in a man on such an expedition to be able to eat anything. Lieutenant Hansen, too, had a most accommodating appetite. At a pinch, he would have made a meal of nails and pebbles. But at the existing temperature, however much we might call it spring-like, we could not stop long for refreshments. The whips were soon cracking again, and the dogs and men were off once more. The old eagle was invited by the ever-polite wrist-vet to seat herself on his sleigh, and so she was very well off. At half-past six in the evening, we bade farewell to the Eskimo near our depot. They were going on to the nearest camp, while we intended to spend the first night here. The separation would not be for long, as they were to return to Okchuktu for seal-catching. With some anxiety, we examined the depot, and found it untouched and in order, to the great credit of our friends the Nechili, to whom the wood and iron materials stowed away would have been immensely valuable. It would not have been difficult for them to steal the whole of it, hide it till we were clear away, and then enjoy the benefit of it. The tent was now sufficient as a night shelter, as the temperature seldom went lower than 22 degrees below zero. Small as it was, it rendered valuable service, and we saw it fixed up with delight as a sign that the day's toil was ended and the night was before us. At eight o'clock the next morning, we went on ahead. We had loaded 600 pounds on each sledge. With strong, well-grown animals, five dogs for each would have been ample. As it was, the loads were too heavy and our progress was slow accordingly. We also felt the want of the Eskimo, who on the day before had driven in front and smoothed the way for us. From Abva, where the depot lay, we shaped our course towards the ice and then southward to Matty Island, where I wished to place my first magnetic station. In the evening, when we were about to select a site for our tent, to our joy we discovered an Eskimo camp a good distance away with at any rate one living inhabitant a solitary black dot moving among the huts. We made a rush for the igloos, but, alas, found an abandoned camp. The inhabitant we had seen flew screeching up behind one of the huts. It was a raven. In the evening of April 9th, we reached Cape Hardy on Maddy Island after a hard struggle over the pack ice which blocked the coast. We had to leave one sledge behind and harness all the dogs to the other. Next morning, at half-past six, we took the dogs with us in leashes and fetched the sledge we had left behind. The whole distance was nine miles. Later in the day, I took our latitude and longitude, and by the time Ristvet, who was an excellent cook for such a journey as this, had served dinner, the observatory was built. It was simply a round wall, just high enough to shelter me and the instrument. From the observatory to the tent, which was about 200 yards away, 
I stretched a cord making the other end fast to Risbet's arm. By this means, he could, while lying in the sleeping sack, read off his watch every time I pulled the cord. This was very convenient for me, as I was thus spared the trouble of recording the time. Risbet was hugely delighted each time he got a tug. I took observations from five o'clock to six o'clock in the morning and at night. The temperature went steadily up. The first night's minimum was minus 16.6 degrees Fahrenheit. One afternoon, when I was going to read the time, I unfortunately slipped and broke the watch glass. Then we emptied the pepper canister and used it as a watch case. On the whole, the work went well, and by April 14th, we had finished. On the 15th, we went on further. There was a thick fog, and just as we halted, two Eskimo emerged from the gloom. They belonged to the same gang that Hansen and I had met in March. But, under present circumstances, we had to be on friendly terms with the two gentlemen, Kalmalo and Kalakchi. They found their way easily through the dense fog and were soon at their camp. Their hut was the only one left, and these two, with an old woman and two children, were the only occupants left in the bandits' camp. They had evidently repented of their previous behavior, and now were very courteous. We put up our tent near their hut. A storm from the north with thick snow prevented us from journeying further the following day. Meanwhile, Risbet harnessed all our dogs to one sledge and went south to the vessel with Kalakchi to get the watch mended or changed so as not to waste time. The distance there and back was 108 miles, and on the 20th at half-past, seven in the evening, he returned, having satisfactorily accomplished his task. To remain four or five days in idleness with an old Eskimo woman, a man, and two children was not diverting, and it was therefore refreshing to get away again the next morning. The ice off Matty Island was awkward, and to get ahead, we had to leave one of the sledges behind. We, therefore, drove ashore on Boothia Felix and laid down a depot a little northward of Cape Christian Frederick and left the other sledge there. We then went back to the first ledge and passed the night there. We had done 24 miles that day. Next day, we proceeded through the hummock ice with all of the 10 dogs put to the sledge carrying a load of 660 pounds. On the north side of Matty Island, we came upon an Eskimo camp of three huts and pitched our tent with them. Here, we also availed ourselves of the opportunity to give our dogs a good feed. Ristvet had a good meal, his favorite dish, seal meat fried in oil. I am not dainty, but I would rather be without it. It was among these Eskimo that we saw for the first time little Magito, who afterwards became the Belle of Okchuktu. She was twenty years old, married, and very handsome. I was not the only one who thought so. The journey up along the coast of Boothia did not present any interesting feature. We were very near the magnetic poles, both the old and the new, and probably passed over them both. We took up our northernmost station a little to the south of Tasmania Islands and returned back on May 7th. My intention was to go back, fetch our depot, and with it make for Victoria Harbor, where two Rosses had wintered with a victory in the thirties of the last century. A series of magnetic observations here would be very interesting possibly even more interesting than at the pole itself. 
however i was not to succeed in carrying out this plan when on the trip south we passed the old winter quarters my left foot which had been troubling me for some time probably as a result of tight lacing on the ankle became so utterly useless that i had to lie up i was in this condition from the twelfth till the evening of the eighteenth when we were able to go on fix and sill the two inseparables had disappeared during a bear hunt we had had a little further north on the coast and were never seen again ptarmigan showed themselves from time to time and Rispet, with his fowling piece procured us more than one splendid dinner the land along the whole of that coast of boothia is as flat as a pancake far inland rise a few peaks visible some distance out on the ice on may twenty first we reached our depot but found it entirely plundered by our friends kalmalo and kalachki eleven pounds of pemmican lay scattered about that was all we had no choice but to set our course back to the yoa as fast as we could as these ten cakes of pemmican with a couple of packets of chocolate and a little bread represented our entire stock of provisions a strong northerly breeze helped us along and we traveled south at a steady and brisk pace the weather was thick and after a couple of days we found we had strayed inland but then it cleared up and on the evening of may twenty seventh we were on board so our trip was not a brilliant success but considering the many untoward circumstances which had occurred we had to be satisfied with the results. End of chapter 5